back when I was a youth pastor, we had events most every weekend. Well, one of the events that we did every year was a mall hunt. Sometimes we'd have people dress up and the kids would have to try to find them in the mall. Other times we'd make a scavenger hunt out of it. Well, on one particular hunt, we hadn't been at the mall for more than half an hour when one of the students found me and told me that the security at Sears was looking for me. I quickly made my way to the store, only to be told that one of my students, a 14-year-old girl, had been detained. It seemed that she had been looking at some clothing and decided that she wanted to show her friends the size of padding in that piece of clothing, and so she had taken the padding out and left the store with it. I remember shaking my head as the security showed me the video footage of her pulling the padding out. Not only had she stolen something, but she had stolen something of no value. And that night, it was a good thing that I had a group of volunteers with me because I spent most of the night negotiating with the mall security and then the police when they arrived. My heart, it sank every time another person asked her why she was at the mall, who she had come with, and who was responsible for her. As each time, she mentioned me and the church. This just wasn't the kind of publicity you wanted. For some of those we talked to that night, we'd forever be that church that brought the shoplifter to the mall. What's worse, well, she was a regular tender in my youth program. She was also a pastor's kid from one of the other churches in my area. Her sin made us all look bad. Today, often we don't think of our sin that way as something that makes us look bad, do we? Instead, we often see our sin as more of a personal thing, convincing ourselves that unless you're some big-name preacher who has committed a heinous crime and makes the front of the Toronto Star, that nobody really cares about it, that it doesn't really affect anybody but us. And if I'm honest, truthfully, in our, to our world, I think you're increasingly right. It's just that most people no longer expect Christians to be all that different from everyone else. And so they aren't shocked when the latest scandal occurs and another pastor falls or their friend or neighbor who claims to be a Christian doesn't act like they should. It's just to be expected. Sadly, it even happens in the church. As most believers seem to have adopted a live and let live policy, concluding that they won't call others on their sins so that they won't be called on theirs. Sure, they, they might gossip about it, but unless it was, they were the ones that were wrong, they tend to tell themselves it doesn't involve them, that it's between the other person and God and stay out of it, that their sin isn't a big deal. On the passage we come to today, that's how the people were feeling. They just didn't see their sin nor the sins of other believers around them as a big deal and certainly not as things that affected them. And yet we come to our passage for today, we find that nothing could be further from the truth. That not only did their sin affect their relationship with God, it affected their relationship with each other. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi, this time chapter 2, as we continue in our study of this book. As you turn, you'll remember that as we come to the book of Malachi, we come across the people of Israel between Nehemiah's first return from Persia to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and serve as governor and his second. While Nehemiah had been there the first time around, things have gone well. It seemed as if God was at work. Miraculous things had occurred. But after he left, it hadn't taken long for things to go back to the way they were before and for the people's hearts to wander. It's just that their lives are hard and their dreams and hopes of the return, the grandeur of Israel to return, had long but been dashed. They had been able to return to land, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. They had even rededicated themselves as a people to God. But as a nation, they still remain nothing but this small fringe province as a part of the vast Persian Empire. And they had no prospect of that ever changing. Most were barely eking out a life on, on at best marginal land. One thing is for sure, the excitement that they had 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 faded. And with it, their commitment to God had waned. 
even the priests, those that had been chosen to be the go-betweens between the people and God, had felt it. For them, their job that was supposed to be a privilege felt more like a burden. Why worship God? What had he done for them lately? Where was he in this? God, he knew they were struggling. He could see their growing lack of commitment. And he knew that they were questioning his love for them. And so he sent Malachi to them to remind them of who he was, his love for them, and to warn them what would happen if they didn't correct their ways. Well, no doubt it was because they were questioning their love, his love for them and, and his commitment to them that they had started to stray from him. After all, if God wasn't going to be committed to them, why should they be committed to him? It's something we learned last week that you, you could see in their worship as they had reduced the requirements of the sacrifices, watering them down and settling for something that was far less than what God had asked for them. But it didn't just show up there, no. In the passage we come to today, we also learn that it was showing up in how they treated each other and handled their covenant commitments. Somehow the people, they had failed to remember that their covenant with God was a covenant that bound them together as a people. In fact, so much so that God's law not only spoke about how they were to treat God, but had an awful lot to say about how they were to relate to one another. Later, Jesus would sum up the commandments that were part of this covenant by saying the first and greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second was like it, that you were to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in their minds, they divorced the two, convincing themselves that how they treat each other had nothing to do with their covenant or their faith in God, and that their sins had nothing to do with anyone else, that they were private matters, certainly didn't affect others, and were easy, even easily overcome in their relationship with God, all of which were not, was not true. And so in the section we come to today, God reminds them of the truth. If you would, follow along as I read, starting in verse 10. Malachi chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughters of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you've broken faith with her, though she is your partner the wife of your marriage covenant. Has the Lord not made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Well, here in Malachi, God, having already dealt with the priests, moves on to an area where the priests were not the only ones in the wrong. Instead, it seems that all had joined in. Not wanting it to continue, God calls them on it. And as he does so, he reminds them of two truths. Two truths that are as essential for us today as it was for them Two truths about, tell, that tell us how we can be right with God. So notice the first one. 
that to be right with God, you need to be right with each other. To be right with God, you need to be right with each other. Malachi here, he starts by reminding them of the roots. How God, he had made a covenant with them as a people group. How he had chosen them, and by doing so, had not only become their father, but had joined them together, knit them into a nation. No, no longer were they isolated or alone or independent. Instead, they were part of the same family. Well, you'd think that being part of the same family would have affected how they treated one another, but sadly it didn't. No, while they should have been committed to each other, in each other's corner, spurring each other on to love and good deeds, striving together to be all that God wanted them to be as a nation, they weren't. And so this passage, in this passage, Malachi tells us that they were breaking faith with each other. Truly, there are probably many examples that Malachi could have given, perhaps pointing to their business dealings with each other, or maybe their lack of caring for the poor among them, or protecting each other. But instead of pointing to any of those, he pointed to them marrying the daughters of foreign gods. Now, don't hear Malachi wrong. He isn't condemning mixed ethnic marriages here. He's condemning mixed faith marriages. He was saying to marry someone who doesn't worship the one true God was to break faith with one another. Today, we often don't see that connection, do we? We just don't understand how marrying someone, how someone marrying an unbeliever is breaking faith with other believers. How if I were to marry an unbeliever would cause me to break faith with, say, Pastor John. After all, marriage, it is a personal decision. And how can who I marry affect John? Sure, I can get it how it affects my family and maybe those really close to me, but not anyone else. And yet here, the very first example that Malachi gives of how they were breaking faith with each other is that they were marrying foreigners, those that were outside. In fact, Malachi goes on to call it detestable, using a word that describes something that is seriously incompatible with God and his order of life, things that are dangerous, grotesque, and out of place, a word that is used of false worship in Isaiah, murder in Proverbs, idolatry in Ezekiel, and despicable pagan religious practices like prostitution in Deuteronomy. In other words, Malachi makes, makes this out to be something that is shameful and repulsive to both God and man. Truthfully, Malachi would have been hard-pressed to find a word that was more condemning. So you can be sure that this was no small infraction. This was serious. And it didn't just affect them. No one said Malachi is clear that it affected the entire community of faith. Somehow the people, they had forgotten that since God had made them one, since he had united them into his chosen people, when one hurt, they all hurt. They missed how their individual sin might result in God's corporate judgment on them. And yet you would think if there was any area that they would have remembered something in, it was this one. After all, God had been explicitly clear how they were to deal with the people when they had first come into the promised land, that they were to make no treaty with them and show no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stone, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grains, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flock and the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. 
You'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your men and women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you from every disease. God had been clear that to marry foreigners was unacceptable and possibly was to forfeit his blessing. Clearly, it was something they weren't to do. No, no doubt it was just that God knew that marrying a foreigner, someone who was devoted to a foreign God, would cause some of his people to stumble. That in time, they would start to worship the gods of their new wife. And since God wasn't about to share his worship, since they were to have no other gods before him, nor make an idol or worship an idol, doing so would violate his covenant with them as a nation. It would desecrate the sanctuary he loves, desecrate the holiness, the, the temple, the people he loved. And that not only would have consequences, but because it brought sin into the camp, into the group, it would be to break faith with one another. In fact, you've got to think, for those that have studied their history, the, the fact that some would consider to do this would cause them to shake their heads and even their fists. As more than once, it led to their downfall as a nation. Nehemiah, understanding how disastrous this was, once wrote, In those days I saw the men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other people and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah got so enraged by it that he tells us that not only did he rebuke them and call down curses on them, but that he beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And then he says to them, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourself. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Years before Ezra, he too knew how dangerous it was and got annoyed when he heard that it was going on. The book of Ezra tells us that he tore his cloak and tunic, pulled hair from his head and from his beard, and sat down appalled for hours. After much thought, he not only had them confess their sin, but separate themselves from their foreign wives. He even forever shamed the priests that were guilty by concluding his book by naming them. How's that for a heritage for you? To be ever marked in God's word for your sin. Even here in verse 12, Malachi wishes that all the guilty would be cut off, either expelled from the covenant community or killed. This was a serious sin and had serious consequences and had had serious consequences for them as a nation in the past. And so it couldn't be tolerated. Yet sadly, while their history was full of examples, when marrying foreigners had brought God's judgment on them, here they either forgot that or convinced themselves that this time was different. Truthfully, for many, it probably seemed justifiable. It, it just made sense. After all, most of them were just trying to do what they could to succeed and survive. You see, it's just that during the last two-thirds of the 6th century B.C., Judah had suffered far more than her neighbors had at the hands of the Babylonians. Judah had been the one to lead the, the regional opposition against them and, and held out for a long time against their siege. And so they had been destroyed more thoroughly. As a nation, they were almost completely depleted. But not only that, the, the Jews that had returned from exiles returned to not just an impoverished land, and a thoroughly destroyed capital, but hostility from neighboring states, exploitation by the Judeans who hadn't been taken into exile, and an economy that was mostly under the control of foreigners. Foreigners controlled the land and most of the wealth. So what were they to do? 
wasn't it better to advance yourself and dig yourself out of the pit by marrying into a family of means than just to continue in poverty? Doing so almost guaranteed stability. It opened up opportunities for them. So what was wrong with that? Didn't God want that for them? Didn't he want them to be happy? Didn't he promise them success? Why shouldn't they get what they wanted? Truthfully, most had convinced themselves that it wasn't a big deal and wouldn't even affect their worship of God much, if at all. They just couldn't see why it mattered what their spouse's faith was, provided that they were still able to maintain and practice their own faith. Why should God care as long as they were still making sacrifices in the temple? Even among those who knew it was wrong, no doubt they simply figured that some sacrifices should make it all go away. That as long as they gave them, that it would be all okay. Like the person who knowingly sins and then writes a big check to the church or tries to offset their sin with good works or who has a sin now and repent later attitude. These people were still attending the temple services and offering the appropriate sacrifices. The only problem was, while they thought that way, God didn't see it that way. No, instead, he knew that their hearts weren't devoted to him, that they'd chosen to sin against him, to go against his law, and were unrepentant of it. And so he decided he would no longer pay attention to their sacrifices and no longer give his blessing to them. God just wasn't prepared to overlook their sin. Now, before you think, that well, this was just an Old Testament thing, you need to know that was true for Israel in Malachi's day is just as true for those that follow God today that God still calls his followers to only marry other believers. In fact, over in 2 Corinthians 6, we read this, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So perhaps like them, you think, okay, well, maybe that's true. But even if it is... Even if it affects my relationship with God, certainly it doesn't really affect you as my brother or sister in Christ. So why should you care? Well, if you think that way, you need to know that that isn't what the Bible says. You see, it's just that we're told that God has also knit us as believers into a body. Over in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul would put it this way, that the body is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. God, he's knit us together as a unit, and as a unit, what I do affects you. Just how cancer in one part of the body affects the rest of the body, just as spraining an ankle can incapacitate the entire body. Still not sure? I mean, there's two passages that bring this out. Passages that speak how our personal sin affects not only us, but each other. And yet passages that we often read and assume they're saying the same thing. Until, that is, you look at the differences between the singular and plural pronouns in them. The first is 1 Corinthians 6. There, we'll write down sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul writes this, Flee from sexual immorality. After all other sins are, a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies, implied singular, are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Singular. Whom you, singular, have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. 
The other verse sounds like it. It's not but a few chapters before where Paul wrote, Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. But while in chapter 6 the context is clear, the you is singular, it is you. In chapter 3 it's clear that it is plural, it is you. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying that you together are God's temple and warning us about the consequences of being someone to destroy that temple, to destroy the people of God. In the same way those in Malachi's day had desecrated the sanctuary, the temple, the, the people of God. In other words, if you're a believer today, your sin doesn't just affect you, but the entire body. So just as it was breaking faith as a Jew to marry an unbeliever in Malachi's day, it is for a believer to marry an unbeliever today. And yet, sadly, that fact hadn't stopped them, nor does it stop many today for that matter. Instead, like back then, it's become all too commonplace. Seriously, I get it. After all, if you're single and looking for someone to spend your life with, if you don't find the one in the church, where are you supposed to go? I certainly can understand how if you... Someone at your work or in your life seems attracted in you, to you and isn't hostile to Christianity and doesn't seem to object to you going to church, how you'd want to date them and even marry them and see what happens. And yet Malachi couldn't be clearer. He says here to do so is to profane the covenant and desecrate God's people, that it goes against God's goal for marriage. See, it's just a marriage. It was intended to be much more than having someone to go home to and cuddle up on the couch with in front of the TV. It, it was meant to be a spiritual union, a deep and lasting friendship in which we share our deepest longings and our most difficult spiritual struggles, where we pray for one another, sharpen one another in our faith, rebuke and encourage one another, and serve God together. During every wedding ceremony I perform, at some point I'll challenge the bride and groom, and then I'll say to both of them, that as the years go by, if I were to ask either of them what draws them closer to God and causes them to be more committed to their faith, my hope is that they would say each other, marriage is supposed to be like that. Well, how can an unbeliever do that? They can't. It's simply impossible for them to connect on the deepest level of the soul with a believer. What's worse? Since an unbeliever has never experienced the greatness of God's love, while they can love, they are completely incapable of reflecting God's love. Besides, to marry an unbeliever speaks to where our heart is at. After all, while we all make compromises when we marry, as no one checks all our boxes, maybe has less hair or shorter than she imagined, perhaps she can't cook or isn't interested in watching sports or golf or whatever, and then for some people, such shortcomings in a potential spouse may be a deal breaker, while for others or not, someone who's always had a dog maybe can't imagine a life without one. So finding out a person is allergic to dogs may be enough to cross them off the list of potentials. Others might not care. For some, they spend every weekend watching golf, and they can't envision marrying someone who doesn't even like the sport. It just all depends on how important those things are to them as to whether they are deal breakers. The same is also true of our faith. As one author put it, if your relationship with Jesus is the very center of your life, your only hope in life and death, and he has commanded you to only marry believers for your own good, then you would think it would be a deal breaker, wouldn't you? In fact, if your faith is not central to such a major decision as whom you are going to marry, then someone will be right to question whether it is as central to your life as you say it is. And make no mistake, God wants to be central to your life, the one who you build your life around. 
Dear friends, God has called those who follow him to see the world differently, to shape how they spend their time, talents, and treasures, how they set their priorities and goals by what he wants. So to marry someone who has a different worldview is to at best face constant tension and at worst face the continual temptation to abandon this worldview and turn away from the faith. A danger that shows itself not only in Israel's history, but shows itself today among believers. And like it or not, a danger that seems to only get more acute when you add kids. After all, parenting is supposed to be this team sport. Kids need both parents to point them to God, both to show them the way to live in the life of grace. Sure, there are many that are raising children who are not, who both are not Christian. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. If one parent is at best neutral or against the faith, it makes it awful hard. Hard to encourage the kids to attend church over other opportunities. Hard for them to help their, see their, to help their youth see youth group as more than just a social gathering, as both parents don't see things the same way. Often there's nothing but a competition of the faith. Sure, many believers have no choice but to work alone in that. But that isn't what God wants. You see, it's just that God had a pl- plan that a man and a woman would become one flesh, be partners, share everything, build a life together, and together seek to please him. In fact, for the Jews, their personal blessing depended on preserving this covenant, as did their corporate blessing, as how they live affected each other. Like it or not, that's just as true of believers today. After all, if we don't put God first, it affects his blessing on his people, his church. Not sure? Just read through the seven churches written to in the book of Revelation. Each one is told that Jesus will remove their lamps and close their doors if their individual sin and corporate sin didn't stop. Or think about how one sin can put strain on the body, perhaps disqualifying someone from the role in the body they were supposed to have, or how my sin can affect the church's witness or discredit other believers. Several years ago, in one of my previous churches, there was one Sunday that would be forever imprinted on my mind. Another pastor and myself had been counseling a man in his 80s that had been charged. 30 years before, he had abused his granddaughters while at a cottage. It was a horde. It was a shock to everyone. But he was guilty, and so we were working with him, the police, and the family. So since it had been decades before, and out of respect for both the innocent and guilty, we weren't broadcasting it because we knew it would affect not just them, but the church. Well, on one Sunday, one of the victims decided it was only fair that everyone knew. And so while I was preaching, they went out and they put on every windshield in the parking lot a letter declaring that. Every visitor and member got one. The service hadn't been over a couple minutes before someone brought one into me. I've never sprinted out of the church so fast as I tried to remove as many as I could. Regardless, his sin had impact on everyone. Persistent unrepentant individual sin is like that it acts like a cancer to the body and here in malachi that cancer was destroying them as a people apparently didn't take long for them to notice that something wasn't right that god was distant their prayers weren't being answered and so they upped their game malachi tells us they weeped and wailed they metaphorically covered his altar with tears no, not in repentance, but in an effort to get his attention, to win his favor, banking that their emotions together with their sacrifices would be enough to do so. But it had failed. And so confused, they ask why. And it is as Malachi answers that question that we come to the second thing we want to notice today, that to be right with God, you not only need to be right with each other, but you must be faithful to your wife. To be right with God, you must be faithful to your wife. 
Now, truthfully, the, both of these were connected. After all, most of those who were marrying foreign women had done so after divorcing their wives, tossing their wives aside in favor of a different model. Some were after a more connected model, others a more appealing one. For some, it's just that they wanted control of their own lives, and their wife or their youth had been chosen by their parents for them, so they decided to divorce them and marry others that they were more attracted to. For others, they were marrying into influential families and opportunities. And to be sure, at the time, either way, they could have just married a second wife. Polygamy wasn't forbidden at that time. But since the first wife always had a place of honor, it surely would have gone against the wishes of that new wife and their new in-laws. Regardless, God wants nothing to do with either. He cared for their marriages, and so he refused to accept their offerings or answer their prayers. In other words, how they were treating their wives directly affected their relationship with God. And that is also true as true today as it was back then. Now, not because we earn God's love by what we do, but because what we do reflects our faith. So if we're only faithful in our marriage when it's pleasant or convenient, if we only honor our vows when we are content, we betray how small God is and how unimportant His commands really are to us. We show how little faith we have in faithless people well, they don't have God's ear. First Peter 3 reads, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, these men missed that. And so they were divorce, divorcing the wives of their youth. The very ones they shared their struggles with, rejoiced in their, who had rejoiced in their success, who had walked arm in arm with them on the journey of life. The ones they'd been in love with, devoted to beginning a family with, raised children with, and had been with them and lived with them through it all. Malachi here refers to them as their companion, their partner. That word partner has the idea of being bonded, cemented together. These two had shared everything together, griefs and joys, successes and failures, hard times and good times, and yet now they're casting them off and breaking their covenant with them. See, from the very beginning, God had said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. John Piper writes that hold fast. It doesn't mean a warm, affectionate embrace, but an exclusive and steadfast devotion, a covenant that was a commitment they had made to each other, the covenant they shared. Friends, if you've been married, when you stand before, stood before God and witnesses and said, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and cherish till death do us part, it was a covenant, a promise. It wasn't one of those things. It wasn't just an ambition or a hope or goal. It wasn't something that you can throw your hands up and say, oh, well, we tried. It was a promise. A wedding is not a celebration of love found, but of love declared, of love promised. If we abandon our promise when it doesn't serve us anymore, we prove the vow wasn't really a promise at all, but just a formal way to get what we wanted. An act of selfishness devoid of any real love. When we divorce, we break that promise, our covenant between both our, us and our spouse and us and God. And today, rarely do we think of our vows that way. And said, sadly, I do's and time often become I don'ts. Sure, sometimes the fault is clearly on one person, but oftentimes the causes are much more complex. We, we say we've grown apart or we've fallen out of love. Regardless, it seems to happen often. To the point, well, 50 years ago, parents were apt to have lots of kids. Today, kids are apt to have lots of parents. 
So normative is is it that we tend to shrug our shoulders when we hear of another marriage breaking out. We aren't shocked. It's just part of our life. In fact, so commonplace is it that our world has started to capitalize on it. I mean, did you know that in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there's a company called Freedom Rings, jewelry for the divorced. The company makes custom jewelry out of wedding rings. Each customer at Freedom Rings pays a fee, and the ring-smashing ceremony begins, complete with champagne and music. Just before the smashing, the MC says, we will now release any remaining ties to your past by transforming your ring, which represents the past, into a token of your new beginning. Now take the hammer. Stop for a moment to consider the transformation that's about to begin your new life. Ready? With this swing, let freedom ring. Then they use a four-pound sledgehammer to whack what used to be a symbol of their love and fidelity into a shapeless piece of metal. And the ceremony ends. The fact that women are pounding their wedding rings into pendants and men are grinding theirs down into golf ball markers doesn't surprise me, though. It's about a perfect picture of what's going on in our world. No longer are vows seen as permanent and binding, but as something to be discarded and smashed. And yet here in Malachi, we're told that God was the witness to those vows. He was a covenant witness. A covenant witness, they weren't the same as a court witness who simply gives testimony. A covenant witness was the one who enforced it, which is why he refuses to accept their offering or hear their prayers. So more than a witness, Malachi here, he also tells us that God is the maker of that covenant, that he is the one that makes them one. You see, marriage is far more than the legally or formally recognizing, recognized union of two people as, as partners in a personal relationship. A marriage is a joining together of a man and a woman by God. Jesus himself painted this picture in Matthew when he said this, Have you not read that he who created them from the, from the beginning made the male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God's plan, it was simple, it was clear. One man and one woman becoming one to fulfill God's plan to produce a godly family. At least, I think that's what Malachi is getting at in verse 15, a a verse that will be translated differently in whatever translation you have. But I believe that he's saying that it's God who made them one. That if God had wanted to do something else, his spirit was capable of doing more. In other words, if God wanted Adam to have more than one wife, he was entirely capable, had the creative power and reserve to do so, but that's not what he chose to do. He made the two one. Well, if that is the case, if God made them one, to break that union is to rip apart a divine masterpiece. Dear friends, don't miss it. Regardless how you met, however long you dated, whatever reasons you had to marry, God married you. God made you one. And so to undo it violates him. It is a sin against him. Well, let's be honest. Rarely do we think of divorce as a sin. Instead, we see it as a painful experience, a failure on some level, an unfortunate turn of events, and maybe even an embarrassment, but not a sin. And yet here we're told that so upsetting to God is it that he hates divorce. Now, I can hear someone say, wait a minute, Chad, how can God hate divorce? I mean, didn't he allow it in the Old Testament? In fact, doesn't Deuteronomy chapter 24 imply that it was simple as sending your wife away with a letter? And in some regards, you're correct. In Deuteronomy, it does say that you could send your wife away if you found something indecent in her. Although there's much debate about what that meant, some 
argue that it means adultery. Others maintain that it included anything that a husband might have been disappointed in their wife about, even down to the burning of his food. But while Moses allowed divorce, it wasn't that way from the beginning. And said Moses had only allowed divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Dear friends, don't miss it. Divorce is always the result of hard hearts, of sinful acts and attitudes that fall short of God's goal for marriage. Sure, the New Testament, it too gives a few exceptions. But divorce is never God's ideal. It's never what he wants. He hates it. God is a God of faithfulness, so he hates it because it breaks faith. In fact, here we're told that he sees it like violence, like someone who covers himself with violence, someone who has blood on their hands. So for a believer, divorce is rarely an option. As those whose hearts have been softened by Jesus don't have a hard heart, but instead put God first, and as a result are committed to their spouse, always keeping watch, always on guard, always protecting them. I don't know where you're at today, but I do know this. That regardless where you're at, this passage has something to say to you. If you're married, it, this passage, it calls for you to guard your marriage, marriage to treasure it. It also calls you to look at your life and ask if there's other ways that you've marginalized your faith, other ways that you've pursued your own desires in a way that has hurt other believers and sinned against God. After all, divorce was just one of the symptoms of a greater problem. The problem was not putting God first. So this passage, it calls you to ask God if you've done that and remind yourself that not only should you not expect God to accept your offerings when you have, but you're hurting your fellow believers as you do it and need to repent if you're single. This passage calls for you to see how important marriage is to God and commit to honoring Him by only marrying other believers. And for those who are watching that have been through a divorce, for those on the one hand that have treated their vows lightly, that should have humbled themselves, got help, and sought to change their hearts in ways that might have helped their marriage but didn't, this passage would call you to recognize whatever role you played, to not fluff it off or assume that it doesn't affect your relationship with God, to not deny that it hurt the body, the church, but to ask God for forgiveness, knowing that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive them, and then move forward, committing to guard your current marriage. And for those, on the other hand, that have been through a divorce, but one the Bible would permit, maybe your non-Christian spouse abandoned you or your spouse cheated on you, well, that is you, this passage should comfort you and remind you that not only does God deeply care for you and feels your pain, but that He takes your betrayal seriously and will help you through it. Either way, if you're divorced, know that God longs for you to have healing and walk with Him into the future. And as your brothers and sisters in Christ at FBC, so do we. Still, regardless of whether you're married or single or divorced, don't miss the greater call that lies underneath this passage. The call for God's people to honor Him and how we treat each other, especially ourselves, our spouse, because we can't be right with Him unless we're right with one another. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it speaks truth regardless of our culture. And Lord, as we live in a culture that has made divorce acceptable, Lord, help us to be those who stand against that, that, that honor the vows we made before our spouse and before You, those that are committed to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.